my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today I'm speaking with Tracy Garner. She is an international best-selling author of 14 books. She's a speaker, a writing coach, and a dynamic course creator. She writes fiction and nonfiction, depicting African-Americans triumphing over adversity and meeting success, whether that be in love or life pursuits. Tracy loves public speaking, teaching workshops, and talking about the craft of writing at every opportunity. She is the creator of Garner Solutions, LLC, coaching new and aspiring writers through finishing the book and publishing process, as well as helping people with disabilities reach their independent living goals. Tracy holds a BS in communications and resides outside the DC metropolitan area with her family. Um, Tracy, I, I left a lot out of that um, because, well, what I've read about you is pretty awesome, pretty amazing, and and I wanted to save some for the for the conversation. Um, but thank you so much for for coming on and having this conversation with me and and sharing your story with with my audience. Yeah, Dave, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, um, let's start where it all began. Where were you born and raised? And, uh, and what were some of your early influences? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Virginia. I'm still in Virginia, I'm just outside of DC, about 45 minutes away. Um, I was born um, to a pastor and my dad was a pastor before he passed away. And um, he had a church for almost 30 years out in the country, um, suburbs of, of Northern Virginia, Culpeper, Jeffersonton, a little tiny town, um, and my parents were high school sweethearts. So I think that part of the reason I write about love and, and family is just because of the influence that they had on me. Um, my parents actually went to the prom with different people, and my dad took um, the woman he was with home and then went and visited my mom, and I think they somehow ended up back at the prom, or they were just, they ended the night together, which is just hilarious to me and like such a cute story, um, and I liked it happily ever after, um, so I've just been um, exploring stories of romance, of really solid families and working together. And I was diagnosed at two years old with muscular dystrophy. So I'm a Jerry's kid, but my mom's assured me he's not my real daddy. So, um, you know, I just um, live with that. And I think my parents' faith and my dad being a clergyman um, and a pastor and all just really instilled a lot of faith in me about despite my condition, despite getting my first wheelchair at, in elementary school, um, I just adapted. I used to pay kids in push pops and dum-dums to push me because I was like, my dad maybe get um, a manual chair 
when I first was um, starting to, you know, use some of the assistive technology that was available, and I absolutely hated it. And so I pay my friends and candy to push me. But then like, I got like in trouble because they're like, you can't sell or solicit on school grounds. I'm like, I'm a businesswoman. Like what, like I'm making deals here, you know? So, um, so I just had this awesome resilience in a way to look at things until I got my first power chair in uh, sixth grade. And I was like, see you fools later. Now I'm able to get around and move on my own. It was so liberating. But I think most people could have looked at that like, oh my God, you know, like I have to use these things. I always saw technology and everything as a tool for me and a way to, um, you know, get my independence and, and be free, you know? So I never looked at it as something is something awful. I looked at it as something like, I need these, these are my legs. Um, and I think that optimism, like I said, just comes from my parents and what they instilled in me. And, um, you know, especially in a black family, you know, men probably have a tendency to look um, like something's wrong with them and take disability personally. But I never felt that from my parents. They never felt like, um, you know, that it was just so awful and they couldn't deal with it. They didn't hide me away. We went everywhere. My dad carried me or he, my dad put me in the van, even as I started to get um, more chunky as a child, not having those outlets for exercise and stuff like that. But um, they never made me feel less than, um, you know, always had me participate in lots of different things, which I loved and which, you know, made me the person that I am today. Can you talk a little bit about muscular dystrophy and what your journey has been like dealing with mm -hmm. that? Yeah, my journey honestly has been great until you get a little bit older. I think that if you have parents that are pretty relaxed and chill about your disability, but still advocate you for advocate for you and are still out there, you will have a really awesome adaptation to the world around you. Um, but you know, as I age, um, you know, you start to be more aware. And I think that that's where the problem, you start to be aware of prejudices, you look back and you can reflect with an adult lens on some of your experiences and think like, wow, somebody was seriously having a discrimination problem um, back then. This person was probably really, um, you know, against inclusion of people with disabilities, but all through high school, all through um, uh, elementary, uh, middle school and high school, everything was great. You know, everything was fine. And my life is still great. I'm not saying that it's not. I'm just saying that, you know, when you get out of K through 12, you have to really become an adult. Um, you have to find your own transportation if you're not going to be able to drive. Um, I had a serious fight um, during my college years uh, with the state rehabilitation and vocational uh, rehab to get the modifications for my vehicle paid for. Took almost eight years. I got rejected three times by, you know, someone I consider an older, um, sent in his ways, uh, Caucasian case manager who kept denying me. And then sometimes I felt like I met a more, um, a younger case manager because he retired and he got moved, you know, out of my way. As soon as the new case manager came, they were like, they put everything through and I don't know it's because they were really green or because they were new and they were like approved. And then like, I got invited to this like luncheon where they gave me an award for determination and, you know, resilience. And I was like, what the hell? Like, you know, it's just like, kind of like you, like you put me through the ringer 
and then you award me for like pushing against you. So I thought that was like so hilarious. But as a young adult in my 20s, you know, it's hard to understand and hard to absorb. So I think, um, you know, I had a wonderful childhood, but then you become an adult and you're out there on your own. You know, one of your parents um, dies, you know, you really lose that, that support sometimes and that advocacy. But thankfully they taught me all those things. You know, my dad used to go down and tell all the, you know, lack for a better word, but just to give people a visual, tell all these, you know, educated white ladies, you know, this is what I want my daughter to do. This is what she needs to be um, successful. And, you know, I think that some parents today are so intimidated by, you know, quote unquote officials that they don't kind of get in your face. My dad's like a large black man. And I just remember him. And I remember the look on the lady's faces, like, you know, who do you think you are? But okay, sir, we'll do what you say, you know? Um, <laughs> and so I just, I just remember all of those interactions. Um, and, and I think parents really need to have the audacity. Um, and your child is so different in front of other people than they are at home. And I think most parents are not aware your child is not trying when they're not, when they're not with you. And I was one of those kids, you know, I'd be like joking, like, um, I joke with my mom, sometimes at a restaurant, people would be like, what is she having? And my mom would be like, ask her, you know, she can speak up for herself. And they would ask me, I'd be like, I don't know, ask my mom. <laughs> I'm just like funny with them, you know? And she would get so mad, like, don't, you, why are you doing that? But that's how, you know, you are, because like, so maybe you don't feel like being an advocate that day, or you don't care, or you just want to take your parents off sometimes. Um, so, so I think that, you know, it's important for parents to recognize you got a little Jekyll and Hyde um, child there, and you need to really be down there at the schoolhouse to make sure that they are doing their best and trying their best. Um, and I was in special education up until about the third or fourth grade. And, you know, I was just like languishing. I was being top dog, which I talk about in my book. Like all the kids with intellectual and physical disabilities were like, oh, Tracy's so smart. Tracy's wonderful. Tracy's advocating for us. And it's like, Tracy's not really supposed to be here. She's supposed to be in, I call it general education, which is what they call it. And to me, I write in the book that it's, it sounds like general population. Like I have to go be with the real dogs, the real vultures and get real bullied instead of being top dog in the special needs uh, kind of set aside classroom. So at about fourth grade, my dad's like, let's, let's get you in regular education. There's no need for you to be in here taking a nap and coloring like, come on, let's, let's do something. So if he hadn't have done that for me um, and my mom too, you know, I just would have been, it would have been so much different. Walk me through your, your teen years moving into college and um, what, what was your major course of study and what was it that uh, really drove you to, to go into that? Um, and then was there some experience or some event that led you to write your first book? Yeah, definitely. Um, what led me to communications really was like, what degree can I get? And I don't take a lot of math. Um, that was like a driving factor. I, I flunked math for liberal arts uh, in community college twice. 
Um, I just could not, I hated math. I was a writer. And most people who are writers, you're either a math and a logic, logistical, technical statistician type person. And then you have the English people that excel in writing papers. Like I could write my butt off, you know, basically. And I always excelled in the writing. And I was really encouraged in high school through a couple of teachers. Um, I think I remember writing a review about To Kill a Mockingbird or something like that. And my teacher was just going on and on about this review. And that really validated me in my writing. But up until then, I had been writing in elementary school, in junior high, and not until I got to high school did somebody actually encourage my writing and say, you know, you really should pursue this. This is really good. She wanted to get it like elevated in some kind of, I don't know, like some, some writing thing. I have no idea, but I'll always remember that because um, that was the thing for me. That was the thing that I spent. I spent a lot of time reading and I mostly spent a lot of time reading when they didn't have anything for people with disabilities to do during recess. You know, of course they got rid of recess, but when I was in school, you know, a gazillion years ago, um, we had recess and I didn't really, I didn't like going out in the cold. I didn't like bugs. I didn't find anything to do on the playground. You know, now they build playgrounds that let you put your entire wheelchair on the swing. They have other ways of being inclusive, but they didn't have that when I was um, coming up. And so I spent, first I spent a lot of time inside looking around for things to take. I was kind of a kleptomaniac in a little bit of sense, but I was bored. And so I didn't know what to do. Um, um, and then I got the whooping of my life and I stopped uh, that for sure. But, um, you know, there's just nothing to do. Mostly I read and mostly I wrote um, little stories. And my dad even found some like story I had written. And they, I, I kind of copied off these, what these other girls were writing. And they were like writing soft porn. And my dad was like, I don't ever want you to write something like that ever again. Um, and I was just doing what they were doing. They would send these notebooks back and forth to each other. And I was like, I didn't know, it just looked interesting. So I'd read it. Wow, it's an interesting story. It was a lot of uh, <laughs> naked people, but um, it's interesting. Um, and so I just, you know, I just gravitated towards writing. And then I started writing cleaner. Um, you know, with your dad being a pastor and all, you should try to write kind of clean. But um, you know, so that just resonated with me. So the reason for the communications wasn't any real, you know, I like to talk and I like to write and those things I excelled in, um, but it was just really to get through. It took me a very long time to get through college and to eventually get my bachelor's degree, but I stuck to it um, and I was working and writing. My first book came out when I was in um, college um, and a funny story, um, I used to print my book. I didn't have a printer at home. And we used to have computer labs. Nobody knows what that is now. Everybody's got a device, or several devices, a laptop, a desktop, and an iPad, and their phone. But um, I went to the computer lab and printed off like, you know, 100 pages, usually like 50 pages at a time. And people would gather around the printer and be like, oh my God, who's hogging the printer? And I would just look around like, oh my God, I don't know. And then as soon as they all left, kind of like reprint their stuff because they could never get it. I would take off these huge stacks of like paper and hide them in my, hide them in my coat or, you know, in my book bag or something. Like I was printing my stories at school and that's how I was able to write my first novel and get it published. Um, and I entered a contest. So that's kind of, you know, what that, those years was all about. And the reason I really started writing, you know, I had the romance because of my parents, but I also had this rejection experience, which everybody has in college, this young man that I really liked, 
and he was a jerk and he couldn't accept the fact that I used a wheelchair. And I think we met online or something. And there was also someone at school. And, you know, I just put them in a book and made them this over the top alpha hero that I really, you know, could fall for and that was accepting of whatever the heroine would have. And that's kind of, you know, what, and I joke that my, um, a mentor friend that um, is also a best-selling author who writes romance, she put her guy in a book that rejected her. It was a similar story that we shared and she killed him off. And so I was like, well, at least I let my guy live <laughs> and um, tried to make him this super over the top, super romantic um, dude. And, you know, that was just so fun to me. So, so you were, um, you were generous to this guy. I was generous. I kept him and I just totally gave him a makeover. Um, and, you know, and I just, you know, it just spurred on from that when I won the contest when I was in college, um, you know, it validated me. I got a trip to New York. They paid for me and my parents to go to New York. Um, I got a $500 advantage, which seemed like a gazillion dollars to a 23-year-old and um, publication of the book. And that's really what changed my life is entering that contest. I was so depressed. I was actually getting those bad grades in math for liberal arts. I was receiving the rejection um, from this young man. And, you know, I was just dealing with aging and getting older and trying to decide where I was going to go and where I fit. And so I think that those, that kind of trajectory, um, I saw the contest online and I actually believe that it spoke to me. I tell people this all the time. That contest spoke to me because I was like boohooing, like, oh, my life is terrible. I don't know what to do with myself. You know, I was just having a boohoo moment. As soon as I saw the contest, like, my tears like dried up. It was like, stop this crying crap. Let's get it, you know, and let's just, and let's move forward. Let's try this. Uh, I remember printing the thing, like I said, at school, taking it home, editing it. Um, and I wrote a novella in the fastest time I've ever written. That was my first time that I actually finished an entire book um, for that contest. And I just felt like I would win. You know, I didn't tell anybody. You know, I told my mom, I'm going to write a book. And, you know, my mom, your mom thinks everything's great. And she's like, oh, that's so good, baby. Go ahead. You know, do it. Yay. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like um, the Eddie Murphy movie, like Hercules, Hercules. Yay, baby. Good, baby. And so it's just like, you know, they really didn't understand, you know, what I wanted to do and what I was doing. So, you know, 20 years later, 17 books later, and, you know, I'm still on this, this wonderful well, journey. It's 17 now? It is. I released like two books, um, two low content books over the winter break and the disability book came out in January. Um, and so, you know, I just keep, I keep going. Nothing. Writing will always be my life. I really hope to get to 50, maybe in a hundred books um, before, you know, muscular dystrophy has its way with me, but that's the path I'm on right now. I continue to work. I have a gazillion side hustles. And the other thing is that, you know, in scripture, Matthew, um, the parable of the talents is like my favorite um, verse. And, um, you know, it's about multiplying your talents. That story resonates with me so much because God is giving you, you know, he's giving people multiple talents, but he's giving you definitely at least one. So writing was it for me. And that has been, you know, the best moneymaker, the best outlet the best creative um, ointment, you know, for me, it helps me, helps me with my mental health. 
um, publishing. I helped someone else publish a book, um, you know, through my coaching. And I just wrapped a book project up this week. Um, it's a book on crew, um, something I never, ever thought, what do I know about crew? I can't even like, you know, dog paddle barely um, without like drowning. Um, but, you know, I helped these people um, write a 40 year history of crew and uh, rowing. And I know what parts of a boat. Um, so they put together this book on crew and they'll be, um, you know, they'll unveil it at the alumni association for all the crew, people who grew up um, around crew and all the coaches um, and the original coach and the creator um, who created that. But writing has just taken me so many places and speaking to, but, um, but that is the talent that I've used to parlay into so many different areas and, and meet so many awesome, wonderful people. And here I am talking about writing and the book which is just another, you know, metamorphosis of, of how we use, um, how I use my craft. So the, the audience is, is fairly diverse. I was wondering if you would paraphrase the, the story of the talents, just sure. because I, I think that that one is, well, it's perfect for what you were just saying, but out of context, if you're not familiar with it, um, it just sounds like a story of talents. Yeah, so it's in Matthew 25, uh, verses 14 through 30, which I did look up, I didn't memorize it, but it's talking about how there were three servants and um, you know, God gave each of them uh, one denarii, which I think is like a bill, uh, a sum of money, gave one, uh, one, one, three, and one, five denarii. And to me, those symbolize um, the talents that he's giving you. So one of them, you know, was scared and went and buried it, basically did nothing. You know, if I took my writing and I did nothing with it, um, you know, hid it in the earth, just went on about my day, like God had given me nothing. Um, the other one, you know, had three and he multiplied those. And then the one that had five multiplied those even more um, and multiplied them the most of everyone that had gotten that. And so I think that, you know, God is looking to us to say, I'm gonna give you some things um, that I want you to use um, and I want you to grow and I want you to use them not only for my glory and to show others um, how, how great your life can be despite like even disability, that could be a considered a talent. Um, I used to see a counselor for mental health and she was saying that, you know, disability has great, given me great empathy, okay? And great emotional um, understanding of other people's plight, of what other people are going through. Um, and as a writer, I also do really well and have a 99% success rate in getting people their benefits as far as their social security applications go. Because all they need you to do is write about why you can't work and how your disability affects you. And for most people, writing is so intimidating. So, um, so it's about what have you been given and how are you multiplying that? How are you using that to affect change, to help others? And also, you know, not, it's not a bad thing to add in, to um, have income to live your life. So, you know, in my side hustles, Really, my other, I, you know, people don't like to use side hustles, but that's what they are. They're not full-time gigs. They're things that I do on the side to supplement my income. I have a salary job. 
I'm teaching other people how to write and publish their books. Um, I created this whole list one time for a blog post of how writing has you know, been used for so many things. I'm writing grants for another organization that's paying money. And I'm also helping them build their bottom line and get money so they can do their programs and services for other people because all organizations need money in order to pay people, in order to buy things, buy materials. And so um, I've used it for speaking. Um, I've used it to publish the books. I have to write a speech and I have to say it, but it all started with writing it down first. Um, and another favorite book of mine is um, called Write It Down, Make It Happen. I read that book. I read passages of that book um, at least once a year. And it's really about, um, you know, people don't like to talk about manifestation, but you make goals. You make a list every day of things you want to get done. You look at that list at the end of the day and wow, I got it all done. So sometimes I write down things. I create vision boards. Um, and that's really the only way. And looking at it at the end of the day and seeing and being able to check mark things off. Yeah, there you go. There's a list right there. Um, and just, you have to, your brain can't possibly hold all this stuff. That's the other reason, um, you know, but how shameful if you have something, if God's given you something and you hide it or you bury it. And that's really what the parable of the talents are. Um, and to receive that judgment for doing nothing. You know, if you had it, like if I just use my writing for myself, great. But if I can use it to give other people their benefits, people need uh, even the, um, Affordable Care Act, you know, writing and interpreting and some of the comprehension for people with disabilities, for people with ID, mostly intellectual disabilities, is impossible, you know, but I've done so many of them that I need to use that in order to help other people. And of course, I'm doing it for a salary right now, but I help people who I don't get paid for, you know, and so that's part of it, not to hide your talent. You have a talent of writing, don't hide that use that for good, use it to show that you can still be productive, and also using my talents to show other people that I'm worthy of citizenship, you know, and participation in this life. Um, right now, people with disabilities um, are going through a really uh, difficult time. We are going through a difficult time about how much our life is worth, right? Because there are new initiatives to, for assisted suicide. And most people know nothing about that. That is, you know, if you go to the doctor, um, and I think in Canada, it's actually been, you know, made into an okay thing to do. For you to tell me that my quality of life is poor, and because it's so poor, I'm not worth living, I'm not worth treatment, so you can assist me in dying. Uh, that The Dr. Kevorkians of the world already did that. Um, you know, and so we have a real fight and most people don't even know that this kind of fight exists. I go into a hospital, you know, I could be denied treatment because saying what kind of quality of life does she have? She uses a wheelchair for God's sake. Like, dude, wheelchair has been the most liberating thing in the, in my entire life to help me get around, help me not sit in bed all day, help me have, you know, my brain still works despite the vessel of this body having issues with mobility and physical ability, the brain is active and I'm still a human being. So we have a lot of challenges that we still face, not that others don't, but there are some unique challenges for people with disabilities, for black women, um, you know, for just trying to 
be a part of, of, of the life that we want to lead and having the supports that we need to be able to do that. It, it's interesting that how you talk about really the vessel that who you are resides in. Mm-hmm. And I, I haven't thought of this in, in quite a while. Um, uh, a, a young firefighter, uh, when, when I, I want to say I was a lieutenant. Yeah, I was a lieutenant in the fire department. Uh, a young firefighter who actually was friends with my youngest brother when we were growing up. They were on the mm-hmm. football team together, and this guy uh, had spent the night at my house when we were in high school, and or when I was already out of high school. Uh, I was actually already out of the Navy. <laughs> That's <laughs> they're a lot younger. Um, well, anyways, he gets diagnosed with a really aggressive form of cancer and he didn't last a year from the moment of that diagnosis and struggling with that. I mean, he had just gotten engaged. He was beginning to prepare himself for promotion, just had this amazing future ahead of him. And the the reality was that he wasn't going to see another full 12 months and and he knew it and it was scary and you know you go through all of those emotions and one of the things that when I went and visited him in the hospital I brought with me um you know knowing what I know about the hospital and, and the, the kind of um, resources that are available, you know, there are spiritual resources, you know, I, I know that his, his pastor had come and there was, you know, um, the, those spiritual resources to, you know, kind of help him make sense of things. And, I wanted to bring him something when, when you're feeling all that anger and you're really pissed off at God and and you don't want to hear what they have to say. I wanted to give him something else. And because I knew he'd come back around to, but that one little piece was a story that, uh, I, I don't know if you remember who James Stockdale, he was uh, an admiral in the Navy. He mm-hmm. actually was Ross Perot's running mate when Ross Perot ran for president. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, the only reason that he agreed to be the vice president uh, on that campaign was he felt like he owed uh, a fellow Naval Academy graduate uh, that helped him when he was in the Hanoi Hilton as a POW, um, he was one of the first people shot down um, at the, it was actually before the war officially began. He spent 
many, many years, actually the entire war uh, in captivity. He was tortured and, uh, you know, he was there at the same time John McCain was there. Uh, mm -hmm. John McCain endured a lot of the same torturing. Um, but it was James Stockdale who came to this, uh, he, he was so determined, like these, my cap, my captors are not going to change who I am, the person I am. They can break my body. They can affect my health. They can take away my freedom, mm -hmm. but they'll never be able to take away who I am. That's and true. and how I respond to everything going on outside, that's up to me. Mm -hmm. And I can choose to feel sorry for myself or I can say, no, nah, you're, you're not going to beat me. Sure. You'll, you'll have to kill me first. Mm -hmm. And... And it was just like that, uh, to me, that was just so powerful, that will. Um, you know, he was listening to his, his buddies getting tortured, you know, and like they, yeah. were, they were doing that to get to him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and he just, there's all those things that, we have no control over. The only thing that we really have control over is who we are and how we respond to the things that uh, influence our lives. And I feel like you have actually embraced that, embodied that, and lived that mindset. And I, and I wonder where that comes from. Was it just an evolution? Was it you know, how your mom and dad raised you? I mean, mm -hmm. was it something that just kind of grew inside you or did yeah. you know it all along? I don't think I knew it all along. I will tell you that my brother um, was in the military for over 20 years in the army. And he said something to me that really made me angry at first when I was like a teenager. Um, I think I was about 16, you know, and he went off to college and he came back all strong and like smart. Um, and, um, and also went um, through boot camp and everything. And that's one thing, just as an aside, I wish there was a way for us to, um, you know, provide a curriculum for, from the military of what you guys go through in training and adapt that some kind of way to give, because there's a certain discipline that comes from military that people with physical disabilities will never really experience. And so I always want to bottle that and find a way for us to teach that, that mental toughness. Um, you know, I don't want to go through um, whatever that is with the, with the, uh, the gas chamber stuff, but everything but that, can we take that and um, apply it to, you know, um, to living um, with um, chronic conditions. But the thing that my brother uh, said to me, and uh, the reason why I was mad at him for a time is because he didn't give me any real explanation on what that meant. But I also, you know, came to know that he learned it some way, and that was to be proactive, you know, not reactive. And I'm like, yeah, okay, Mr. Man, you think you're so macho because, you know, you graduated college and now you're going into the military and, you know, God forbid, well, you were, you know, I knew you when you were nobody and you were puny and didn't have any muscles. 
Um, so, you know, so just that stuff of going through that and that I really had to find my own way. I started learning more about productivity and organization and, um, you know, just really doing a lot of different things. So even though what he said to me was, was helpful psychologically, I didn't have any tools, but that made me want to go and kind of discover on my own the things that I would need to be successful. Um, and that's, you know, a lot of times when people have um, children, um, a little child, you just have one, and then you have a sibling, um, that child starts to try, the little one, the, the newborn starts to just try so much, so much harder. That is that sibling pushing them along. See me, I'm walking and you, you're still drooling. You know, like they, I think it is psychological that they know I want to be like them. I want to walk around like them and be Mr. Macho. And, um, and that was hard for me too, because my brother, he's a man, um, you know, he had this physical uh, presence and here I am feeling like, you know, Danny DeVito and he's Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know what I mean? And so, and it's, and I always, so I knew that I think psychologically and consciously, subconsciously, I knew that you're not going to have physical uh, physique. You're going to be chubby. Um, you can have a really pretty face and luscious lips, but you are going to have to have something else to like, that's all they tell all the fat people. Oh, it's such a pretty face. Like, okay, great. Okay, fine. Um, so I knew that brain power was going to be it for me, like words and articulating um, and, and whatever came out of my mouth had to be the way for people to be like, who's that? You know? And so that was, I had, I've always felt I had to make up for something, you know, not in a bad way, but in a motivating way. I had to make up for something. Every time my brother look, walks in the room, oh, he looked just like his daddy. I look like my daddy more than he does. Okay. Um, and then you have to think about it, like, really, you look like a man, like, really, that's what you want. And like, you just get in these dumb little comparison things. Um, you know, like I, he may look like his daddy, but I have my dad's disposition, which is laid back and it's just a competition, but that also brings you up, you know, that brings you up, that motivates you. Um, you know, and I'm not sure had I not had the sibling, um, the older brother, he's five years older than me. Um, but I always had that just a position of when he walked into the room, here I am rolling with the noisy, you know, broke down wheelchair um, coming here I come, you know, it's like, it was just always this psychological thing in my head. And so that would motivate me to be the best I could intellectually. Like, yeah, he's cute and all, he's tall, he's muscular. I have a larger vocabulary. Is that sexy to you? You like that? Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, so, you know, you're just always looking for ways to, to focus on the things that you do have and use those as best you can. <laughs> so cool. I had no idea I was gonna laugh so much in this conversation, like, you crack me up, man. <laughs> That's good. I do that uh, for a lot of people. I try. That's another thing I have on my brother. His sense of humor is terrible. He's way too uptight and serious, and I get the laughs. So, oh, uh, good, good, good. Oh, it's always better to make people smile. Definitely. Well, you know what? I use. That's another tool too. 
You know, when I meet people who are uncertain about how to relate to people with disabilities, I'm sitting down, they're standing up, you know, I get the crotch view and the derriere view whenever people come to me or walk away. You know, it's kind of like um, when I say something that's funny, um, that really relaxes people and they are so much more open and we can really have a conversation. But if you're going to look at me as kind of like this enigma that you don't think that I'm just a regular human being, um, you know, as soon as we get to laughing, like I've won you to my side. I, you, I get you to do anything that I want to because you think I'm funny and interesting. But that was also a tool for me in a lot of networking means. I hate networking. It's so false pretense driven. Uh, what do you do? Where do you go? You know, it's almost like a dating app. What's your sex? What are you doing right now? What do you have on? Um, and so it's like, it's, it's just this falseness of, of superficial um, things. And so um, really getting into conversation and making people laugh was always my way of, um, of relieving stress and reducing the barriers that impeded us from, from just talking like normal people. One of the things that, that I do with, well, it, it's become more common lately. Um, I, I have kind of divided um, life's experiences into like three phases. Like by the time I uh, talk with somebody, interview them on the show, they're typically in their third phase. And I'll explain the, the phases that I, for the purpose of this line of questioning. The first phase is, you know, adolescence where, you know, from birth until, you know, high school, first couple of years of college. And then from there on into the beginning of your professional career, where you're really learning what you're good at, what you're bad at, you learn really your, your place in the world, um, like, and who you want to be, you know, like, uh, like for me, I'll explain that. I don't know if I, not your place in the world. Um, like I made a lot of mistakes in my, uh, my twenties and, um, like really learning who I wanted to be, uh, and how I wanted to be viewed as, you know, as a firefighter, as a leader and all that. And, and I started working really hard at that, but I made a lot of mistakes leading up to that. And then beyond that, is when I started being able to apply the lessons from my earlier life to my career and I'm, and I'm able to help other people with those lessons, with that knowledge. And, you know, now like the, the coaching and, and mentoring and, um, you know, writing books and uh, speaking, but trying to help people avoid the same mistakes I made. And then right. when they make them anyways, being the guy picking them up, dusting them off and saying, that's not it for you, man. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, just that reassurance, like when, when you, when you fall on your face, that's not, that's not the end. Right. And you can, you can dust yourself off and, and move forward and, use that experience to 
Well, one thing that I learned about myself through a lot of my mistakes is now I have a level of empathy that I did not have before. Mm -hmm. And that is really very powerful. And that's why we need to challenge them as really being mistakes. You know, there are no mistakes. Those are the things you need to learn, um, you know, in order to be able to, to speak into someone's life. Nobody wants to hear from someone who's done things perfectly. We want to hear from flawed uh, humans who can really tell us, been down that road, this is what happened, um, hope you can avoid it. But sometimes people need to learn, they need to make those errors. You know, you tell a child, you know, don't touch that, that's hot. You know, first of all, they don't trust you, they don't know, they don't believe you. So they have to see, is it really hot? They burn themselves, and, oh, it's really hot. But they'd always wonder, well, is it really hot? Are you just telling me that? Like, yes, I'm really telling you that because it's really hot, you could seriously injure yourself. But, you know, it's not a mistake, it's, it's a learning opportunity. Um, it's, it's the field notes, you know, that's what I call, you know, my book in, in essence, I've gone through certain things I observed, um, as a writer and I observed as an analytical person. And now I'm going to give you the cliff notes of what I took away from those experiences, but you had to live those, um, and you had to experience those things in order to pour into someone else in order to tell them. Okay, I don't want to hear from somebody who hasn't had anything who's so perfect. Like, what are you going to teach me? You're perfect. You seem to just go through life, you know, on a bed of ease. I want to hear someone who has wounds. I want to look at the wounds and be like, oh, that looked hard. That was tough. That was a big one, huh? Um, you know, I just like, I'm curious um, about the wounds because the wounds tell stories. So, you know, the wounds of me, I have a scar down my back. I had spinal fusion surgery. Um, you know, I have rods in my back. I can tell other parents whose children are considering those things. Um, you know, I've had bad reactions because I don't take enough vitamin D. I'm like, don't do that. Take vitamin D, listen to your doctor or end up in the hospital with a whole host of other problems. Um, so, you know, I want to, um, wounds are really kind of sexy to me, honestly. It sounds really kind of sick, but, you know, they're really interesting because you live through something you survived and you're here to tell the story. So, um, so the more wounds, um, you know, that you have, not dumb wounds, you know, not scabs, um, like the one where you bled, you almost bled to death. I want to hear about that wound. Um, so, you know, this is all metaphorical, but, um, but you understand what I'm saying. So I want to know what caused the wound. I want to see, you know, and maybe even touch it and just be like, wow, that, that was a, like, um, an honor. What is it? A rite of passage. You know, that is that you earned that you went through something, you earned that. Um, and you know, I don't know how I earned my lymphedema, but I got it, you know, so, you know, some wounds are, are not, you know, great, but I could tell other people about it and I know about it and um, muscular dystrophy, don't know how I earned that, but I can certainly help other people to be as optimistic, faithful, and even, you know, comedic about it, you know? So those are, those are okay. The, the, the mistakes aren't really mistakes. Um, you know, there are things that you learned and you're better for it. You're better, you're a better human. 
Um, you're more understanding, you're empathetic, all of those things you, you get um, by going through your wounds and, and making um, the bad choices, um, but that still lead to, to you, you don't get up so upset. That's the other thing. You don't, when things happen, you're like, oh, psh, that's nothing. I've been through that, you know? That's like why adults sometimes can't relate to when their child has a breakup. You know, you're kind of like, oh, honey, you almost seem like you're placating them, but it's like the end of their life for them because they've never experienced that. And so probably one reason I don't have children is because you kind of have to lie a lot. Oh, honey, it's, you know, that's, that's just one that you'll have. Don't worry. It's like, there's 50 more coming, you know, but I don't want to like kill them. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you have to become a good liar as a parent, I think, but, um, but yeah. But those are the wounds and those things. And remember, when you protect your children from some of the things, you know, everybody getting a trophy now, we're in that kind of realm of, of um, you know, Alfred Hitchcock, like that, these kids, some of them cannot handle the adversity because of the ease that they experience. We're making things too easy. And when something really devastating happens, you know, they reach for violence. They reach for self-harm. We need these experiences in order to have healthy ideals and, and to be strong and making things easy. Everybody getting a trophy. We're setting ourselves up. That's a whole nother podcast. When I was asking about muscular dystrophy, mm -hmm. I mean, here's about the extent of my knowledge on muscular dystrophy. I know it's tough. And I know it's a disability and there are different degrees of it. I, I have stood in many busy intersections with a bunker boot, mm -hmm. my fire helmet on, you know, collecting. And I knew it was for a good cause. Right. Um, but what that money actually does and, and what the needs of somebody with muscular dystrophy are like, I don't, I, I don't know. And I, I don't know what the, the physiological um, aspect of what muscular dystrophy is and, and how that, um, I mean, is it something that uh, continues to get worse throughout your life? Sure. So a brief overview of muscular dystrophy. There are over probably 50 types of muscular dystrophy. Um, and they're all under this umbrella of MD, muscular dystrophy. It's often confused with multiple sclerosis, which it's not. Those are two different things. ALS is a form of muscular dystrophy. That's the most popular one because everybody remembers the bucket challenge. And it's also so ravenous in its, its um, effect on people. It's a much more rapid version of muscular dystrophy. I have, mus I have SMA, which is spinal muscular atrophy. There are three types of spinal SMA, one, two, and three. I never remember which one I have. I think I have two, but that's, it just doesn't matter to me. So I never really remember, but I do have spinal muscular atrophy. Um, muscular dystrophy in essence just means a weakening of muscles over time. So I walked until I was about 10 with crutches. I used to be able to walk at five and six 
holding onto the wall, um, but my muscles got progress progressively weaker. And so I had to start using a wheelchair full time um, in about elementary school um, and only could walk short distances. But um, so I'm not able to reach things. I need help. I have caregivers in the morning and the evening to help get me up, get dressed, um, you know, do personal care, bathing, toileting, all that stuff. I'm still in control of my body, but I'm not physically able to transfer, stand. Um, I have a lot of equipment. The Muscular Dystrophy Association, it is a wonderful organization, but it has unfortunately come under the, what I call an unfortunate way of thinking for most uh, fundraising organizations. And that is the money goes to research but it also goes to families um, to buy equipment. So, you know, I have like a $6,000 adjustable bed. Muscular dystrophy would pay for some of that. I have a $13,000 wheelchair. Muscular dystrophy would pay a portion of that, maybe $2,000, not that much. And then I have insurance through work. So I have a 20% copay. That's a lot. That's like $4,000. Um, what the issue I have with most organizations, and I don't want to blame uh, the Muscular Dystrophy Association solely because this is the societal problem. This is societal thinking that it is better to put money towards a cure and finding a cure than it is to put towards living. I want funds to go to more families to put towards living. When you're diagnosed with a disability, my parents didn't have money to get an accessible van that had a ramp, I'm talking $35,000. The, the van that I drive is $80,000 because of the hand controls and the vehicle modifications. So I have a ramp, I have the hand controls, I drive from my um, wheelchair so there's no seat, there's a locking device in the floor. All of this costs tons of money. And so we're focusing on cures. Cure is not going to help me at my age. At 45, cure is not going to work. They're using research dollars for cures on babies and people that are probably under six. So in my lifetime, I will probably not receive a cure. I'm not in any testing. I don't really want to go through testing because of the side effects. I have no problem with money toward going towards curing the thing. But my problem is that a cure is only going to cure, let's say it only cures people with ALS. That is wonderful. That will lead to more advances, but the SMAers are not going to be cured. The cures are going to fit certain types of people and certain types of diseases. It is not going to be a one size fits all. So I think money could be also going towards enhancing my life, you know, helping me have the freedom. You know, and it sounds selfish when you talk about, you know, just give you money just to live life and to have the accessible things you need. But some parents are struggling. My dad struggled to lift me and put me in our regular size van, a big old van that he loved. It was like a full size, one of those, like, I don't know, now they look like campers, I guess. But, um, you know, the insurance, the treatment, you know, the co-pays. Um, I had friends who were on steroids. And to watch them come off steroids was truly devastating. My parents never put me on steroids, but it was to preserve the muscle. And a lot of my friends have died anyway, even with the steroids. So can we improve the quality of life that I'm living right now while also devoting dollars to, it's really lopsided. And that's my, my point. I would be happy with 
50% of the money that you take in goes to families and 50% of the money goes to cures and treatment. The other thing about cures and treatment, we negate how much time cures take to test and then to roll out. So that cannot be speeded up by more money. You can't buy time. You need time to test cures, to test uh, medicines. That's just time. So we may be 30 years out. Meanwhile, little Johnny or Susie could have gotten a van, um, at least help on a van, um, you know, that they could use right now so that Johnny and Susie can have the best quality of life they possibly can have. And that money could have been used for that instead of going totally to a cure that Johnny and Susie may not realize in their lifetime. So that is my issue. And that is happening across the boards that do you know, research and cures. And even with the vaccine that was come out, that has come out, you know, that was based on a hundred years of research that they had already been doing. And so it may seem to people that they accelerated the development of the vaccine, but they really didn't. It was based on vaccines and models and the trial and error that happened over the course of a hundred years since the last, um, you know, the Spanish virus or whatever they call it. Um, so sheer time is what made the cure possible. And that is going to be the case for anything that comes out. Um, how can we help people have access to the things that they need? They need a van to get around. We need accessible playgrounds so we can play. Those are the things that are going to affect me and other children becoming, um, becoming successful adults. You know, we even need employment support. You know, having someone to help me use the restroom in the middle of the day would be really great, you know, so I can keep working. Um, and we don't provide those things in the workplace. Just like, well, pee on yourself, good luck, you know, and just, you know, just do it, do it, deal with what you gotta do. You know, wear protective underwear. Like nobody cares about that and how psychologically that impacts my ability to be productive. I don't want to be like, you know, I'm just being honest and being candid. I want to be a pissy mess trying to work and go to Zoom meetings. You know, I got to go to the bathroom. Sorry, we're in a Zoom meeting. You know, it would be nice to have help, um, you know, in the middle of the day. And they don't, and people don't realize how many people don't have assistance. I'm working from home, so I'm able to take care of those things, able to take a break, have a good boss who permits those things. But what about people who have the boss from hell, don't have the support, um, can't pay for the caregivers extra time, during the day, that is about quality of life. You know, you know, great, you're gonna get a cure. Eventually I'll be dead probably when that comes around. And my life, you know, could be improved. Other people's lives, I have a great life, but I'm just using myself as an example to talk about what people go through who don't have the support, the resources, the money from the parents um, in order to realize these dreams and these goals and to participate fully, driving was so liberating to me. When I get in the car, I flirt with other drivers. They don't know I'm in a wheelchair. Like, hey, how you doing? Rolling up my little minivan. It's wonderful. It, it just psychologically, it's, I wish everyone could experience that, but they won't be able to because of the funding that they don't have. Yet yeah, you were holding a boot, a boot, you know, on a hot day in September, collecting money and you know, not even knowing where that going, where that's going, or how that is impacting the individual, you know, that's kind of messed up. We want the money, of course. We want the cure, of course, eventually. 
But, you know, disability has also taught me a lot of things. Though I wish to be stronger, I could be stronger and still have a disability and still be able to do more for myself. And what about that kind of cure? What about just strengthening muscles in order just to transfer myself to the toilet or to the bed or, or what have you? And so, and so that's my only issue with some of these organizations that raise millions, billions of dollars, um, the overhead costs, the administrative costs, all that money, um, and not going directly to families in order to help improve their quality of life. So I'll step down from my soapbox now or roll off. Maybe the soapbox is accessible as a word. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you being so forward with all that because like for one, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I've always felt a little bit off, like not knowing more about what I was asking money for. Right. Um, but I didn't, you know, I, I don't even want to make any excuses. I just wasn't, I guess I was a little more self-absorbed than I thought I was. So and that's okay. I mean, I don't expect everybody to go out and find out what they're making money for, but let's say if there was an opportunity for the firefighters in that community to raise money to help those kids in their neighborhood, like that would be awesome. Um, so that way it is, it is good to know. But again, I don't know what, you know, firefighters, you know, are doing, um, you know, besides going into buildings and saving cats. Like, I don't know what else, you know, goes into all that. And that's okay not to know um but you know but it is but if you're going to do something obviously that's your time that's your effort um that is your contribution you probably made your own uh contributions at some point and so you do want to know where it's going but um but yeah yeah just just let us not get misguided on you know on cures and and what the real struggle is for people in their everyday lives you know, and even with Christopher Reeve, who became paralyzed, nothing to do with muscular dystrophy, but he had everything he need, needed by being rich and by having been an actor for so long. And, and of course, he wanted to exit, um, he wanted to find a cure for paralysis and spinal cord injuries. Like you have everything you need, you know, and it's more was a psychological thing about maybe feeling less than um, and, and of course, wanting to cure everyone. But if you can live comfortably, even with a disability, that would be a great thing too. If I could just have, if people could just have everything they need and still be able to live and still be okay, that would be great too. And sometimes we get way down into cure, cure, cure. Um, and, and everybody, one, everybody's not gonna be cured all at the same time. There are too many versions for one size to fit all. And, and so while we're chasing a cure, people are suffering in their everyday life and the access that they have. What you do with, with Social Security and all that, where you help people write the, is it grants or uh, mm -hmm. is it to request benefits? I right, those are two different things. So I help, I'm helping an organization pursue grant funding just by helping to write the grants and pull those applications together to get money that is available out there 
Um, they just don't have solid grant applications. So as a writer, I'm fixing those. But in my day job as a case manager, I'm helping individuals with disabilities get their benefits. Like if they can't work anymore, then I'm doing the social security applications, which are very long and very time consuming. It takes a year, takes six to 18 months to get approved for disability and everybody gets rejected the first time, no matter what. I don't even think I'm convinced they don't even look at the application. They just reject it and say, do you really want this little bit of money? Well, you know, do your appeals apply again? And so that's what I'm helping people. It's the writing portions, their, their remarks portions. Um, it's just such a tedious application. It's like 30 pages long that people have to do. And people are so intimidated by the writing part because that's not their strong suit. So that's what I'm doing. You know, SNAP benefits, which is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, food, which is commonly known as food stamps, um, the Affordable Care Act, getting that. These things are hard to apply for because if people are not experienced in filling out paperwork and really writing about what they have and why they need the support. And at the end of the day, it's still not enough. You know, people get anywhere between 700 um, and $30 a month all the way up. The most I've gotten somebody is $2,000. And that's because they were a lawyer before they became disabled. And it's like, that is not enough to live on. That's your entire rent check and maybe some food, you know? And so, um, so while you're getting these benefits, they help, but they only help if you're in a really good situation where you're able to get your money and maybe you still live at home or you have a spouse um, or you have parents that are able to take care of the household things and you can just take care of yourself with your monthly benefit, but it's still not enough. We penalize people for being disabled, giving them the smallest amount possible and expecting them to make do with that, that little bit. So that's another reason why I'm working as long as I can. So my disability payout, if I have to go on it, will be higher. But I've already looked and saw what it is. And it's like, even, if I, even though I've been working since I've been 16, it's still not enough. My payout is still not enough. And most people are not getting pensions. They haven't saved enough for retirement. Disability is an expensive condition. All the equipment, all the treatment, the caregiving, the personal care items that you need, the modified bathrooms, the widened doors uh, to accommodate wheelchairs, uh, the elevated toilet, the roll-in shower. You know, these things are expensive. And, you know, again, back to the, to the association funds that come in, could pay for those things. So I, I've worked for a very large me metropolitan fire department. <clears throat> and you have people that are very gung-ho about raising money. And mm -hmm. then you have the people that are like, no, it's all going in to line the pockets of the people that are administrate, you know, the administration of it's it's been bastardized. I don't, I don't want to waste my time with that. You know, I'd rather give my money to this and give my money to this. Well, what you said about raising money for the local area, for the, the people, the families in the community that you know are there. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we respond to those houses. There's, right. there's group homes that... Mm -hmm. You know, this is where I think a lot of families, that's what they have to do. And that's, 
And I just, I, I know that there are so many compassionate firefighters out there that would love their efforts to make the most difference. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not saying stop holding the boot, of course. but yeah. in addition, there's those people in the community that, mm -hmm. that will benefit greatly from just a, a little more effort. Right, right. And then paying attention, paying yeah. attention, you know, don't stop the boot. I'm not advocating that at all. <laughs> um, but just, just see, um, you know, some of you guys, you know, honestly, um, through, you know, your privilege and your, your standing in the community, you have a lot of clout. So you can help change the model and the minds of those that you ultimately, you know, pour those boots out to. Um, you know, when somebody, when you write that check, um, the manager of the fire department or whoever, you know, there's always somebody higher than you that you could speak to that would really appreciate knowing and would also um, welcome your ideas on, on change that could happen. And then, and then, you know, we have to be careful because the other thing is that you have a really great um, big metropolitan firefighter agency, and then you got the ones with the small town you know, I don't know, in Mayberry or something, then just have Barney Fife and he's not raising a lot of money. Um, you know, so we, we penalize that. So, but if it can go into a central fund where it can be allocated um, and distributed more equally, you know, that's good. But a lot of that requires you guys speaking up. Um, you guys are the ones fundraising. You guys have the power. And sometimes your voice is greater than us and ours. Um, you know, when I go advocate, they're like, oh my God, there's Tracy again, you know, and, and it gets, I get saturated, you know, and so, and they're like, and so sometimes we need those other voices to come alongside. Um, they don't necessarily want to see all the people in the wheelchairs coming, even though we're the ones with the greatest headache and the greatest uh, issue as a result of what you're doing. We're the ones that affect, that are affected, yet, you know, people don't want to hear from us all the time. So you have to, you can use your voice to do that and you can try to create change at the local level first and then maybe it'll catch on uh, maybe you'll be the models and it'll start to see changes have a ripple effect in other areas so that would be great too for those listening what's what's the best way for people to connect with you to enlist your services to have you come speak to buy your books is it is there a one-stop shop place or sure yeah, your, your website, I imagine. My website, yep, tracygarner.com, T-R-A-C-E-E, -E, if you please, please, tracygarner.com. You can contact me. Um, you can look at some of the things that I do. All my books are there with links. And, um, and yeah, it's all, it's all there um, on the website. And I'm also on Instagram and Facebook um, under T Garner, T-E-E Garner, G-A-R-N-E-R. And do you have those links for your social media on your website as well? I do. I do. Okay. Everything's there. Yeah. So I will put a link to your website in the show notes. So mm -hmm. it'll be easy enough for those listening. You can just go right on your phone and click on the, the link and uh, check it out. I mean, 17 books. Mm -hmm. And well, and I, I think that we all know um, 
Um, no, I guess not everybody knows somebody that has muscular dystrophy, but um, I think everybody knows somebody that has a disability, though. Yeah. And and so you're not strictly helping people uh, apply for benefits for just muscular dystrophy. It's all disabilities. Oh, no. I work with all people with disabilities. Yeah. Yeah. And is that through a, a private organization or? Mm -hmm. It's through um, the, it's called the Independence Center. It's ecnv.org. Um, and we are a nonprofit. We do only serve our area, but there are over 400 centers um, nationwide. So there are centers in Florida and other places. Um, they all have a little bit of a different model, but we all have the same federally mandated core services that we do um, to, to provide services for people. So if you look up um, you know, Centers for Independent Living and you should be led to a website where you can type in your zip code and it'll tell you the nearest center um, closest to where you live. I will find that and and put that in the show notes as well, so that um, you know those listening, if if you were unaware of those resources, you can uh, click on those links. And mm -hmm. thank you so much, Tracy. Thank you for thank you. for coming on and and sharing your story. And and really, uh, I mean. Crap, I, I learned so much today just, just listening to you, and I, I really appreciate you sharing so much with me. No problem. I thank you for having me, and I appreciate all of your listeners, and I wish you the best. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform, and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.